Emerald Podcast Series. Research that makes a difference. Hi, my name is Daniel Ridge and I'm a commissioning editor at Emerald Publishing. Today, I'm joined by Margaret Arnott, who is Professor of Public Policy at the University of the West of Scotland in the UK. Professor Arnott's research interests and expertise include politics of public policy, constitutional politics, territorial politics, and governance. From 2016 to 2020, Professor Arnott served as a House of Commons Academic Fellow on UK Territorial Governance and the Working of Devolution. One of the emergent findings of this research was that interparliamentary relations in the devolved UK was a neglected area of academic study. She also participated in another research project commissioned by the Institute of Welsh Affairs, the IWA, in 2019 on interparliamentary relations in the devolved UK between 1998 and 2020. For the IWA research project, interparliamentary relations is understood to mean the relationships and interactions between UK legislatures, that is, the House of Parliament in Westminster, the Scottish Parliament, the Welsh Parliament, formerly the National Assembly of Wales, and the Northern Ireland Assembly. Professor Arnott is the author of the recent book published by Emerald Publishing titled Interparliamentary Relations and the Future of Devolution in the UK, 1998-2018, Unraveling Threads. This book is largely based on empirical research drawn from two research projects by Professor Arnott on territorial governance in the devolved UK. The devolved legislature in the UK are still relatively young political institutions. The premise of the book is that the relationships and interactions between any and all UK legislatures have not been static since 1998. Today, we are going to be discussing the UK parliamentary system and specifically devolution and interparliamentary relations. It's a fascinating time to study politics of political institutions and devolution. And that ties into the governance of the United Kingdom. I suppose the starting point is that United Kingdom is a multinational state. That's four nations comprise the United Kingdom. And each of those nations um, have different governing arrangements. Um, we've got the UK Parliament. And alongside that, we've got three legislators in other devolved nations of the UK. One in Scotland, Northern Ireland, and also Wales. And each of these legislators have different roles, powers, and functions. But the key thing is that devolution in the UK retains the supremacy of the UK Parliament. So if you want, it's still seen to be the top of the hierarchy of political institutions in the UK. But practical politics presents a different situation where there's issues about legitimacy, accountability, and also electoral divergence within the UK and between each of the national territories of the UK also. So it's a fascinating area to look at. It's um, in a state of flux just now. I would say we could perhaps talk about that as we go on, particularly to do with the insights of the officials and others um, on their take on 
the role of political institutions and legislators in the UK. Now, why did you you begin in 1998 and you go through 2018? What do these dates represent for you? 1998 is the start of the new phase of devolution in the UK. And what it means is that many powers to make laws and delivering public services have been transferred to national level legislators in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. But it's more complex than that because each nation, each legislator in different parts of the UK have different types and levels of decentralisation and power. So what you have is a constitutional model politically. It's very complex and it comes from not having a written constitution at the UK level. So there's no clear separation of powers between the UK Parliament, which is supreme, and the devolved, decentralised legislators in each of the national territories of the UK. The added complication is that there's much less decentralisation within England as a nation. There's some examples of it in some city regions in England and also in London. But that is a different type of devolution. So you can't use the same description to set out the powers of each of the four legislators in the UK because they all are different. So that's a constitutional model. And there's no neat and tidy answer as well to thinking about how the relationships between the parliaments and between the political parties work out. And this was a highly contested uh, period, um, particularly from 2016. So the devolution that was introduced in 1998 to each of the nations, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, had different historical roots. And that shaped the nature of decentralisation to each of those national territories. But having said that, the UK Parliament in Westminster and also Whitehall is still got supremacy. But what does that mean in legal terms, in political terms, electoral terms? You can see it all becoming very contested and different interpretations and different kind of views on the basically the relationships between each of the nations of the UK. Now, it was the first 20 years of, of devolution um, and there, there was particular political moments, constitutional moments, um, and one which basically did lead to a lot of kind of highly contested debates was the UK membership of the European Union and the referendum that was held in 2016 across the UK on whether membership of the European Union for the UK would be retained. So there was a lot of kind of constitutional tussles and political fallout from that. 
and we're still seeing the effects of that today. So it's the first 20 years of really devolution and it's history matters um, and to explain what devolution actually means because it's a term that's used in, in different ways to different uh, relationships of each of the nations of the UK. Right. And then the other focus is interparliamentary relations in your book. And so I'm wondering what that looks like and what you mean by that. Yeah. I mean, that's a that's a very kind of, it's again, it's an area of research, which is only kind of just emerging just now. And that's a, a consequence of the first 20 years of the devolved arrangements in the UK since 1998 we were a member of the European Union. So European law took supremacy over UK law. But after the 2016 referendum, that changed. And some of the powers which had been decentralised to Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland before the 2016 referendum um, were now rescinded. They would now go to the UK Parliament instead of directly to the devolved legislators. And that's what led to a kind of a growth thinking about not just interparliamentary relations, but there was a, a lot of debate over, and there still is at the moment in the last five years, about intergovernmental relations. Because the UK is not a federal state. To use a sort of academic term and language as an asymmetrical devolution, which really just means that the powers of each of the nations of the UK is uneven. And that goes back to the history. Why does that happen? And it's a, it's a fascinating historical journey trying to, to weave through the nature of the relationships, really since the 18th century, um, that fed into contemporary debates about devolution in the late 20th century. You just mentioned Brexit and, you know, you explore how certain instances of, or policies have fueled tensions between the UK government and the default nations. So obviously Brexit is one of those. And the other is COVID. COVID created a lot of tension between the UK government and the default nations. Can you talk a little bit about these tensions and what they mean to interparliamentary relations? Yeah, I, I mean, that's a, that's a very fair um, question because what you're thinking about there is really the extent to which we're seeing a recentralization of UK governance to focus more so on the UK Parliament and the UK government. Um, whereas we're just saying for the first kind of 20 years of devolution since 1998, there'd be more of a, a trend, arguably, for decentralization, for autonomy in some senses about political and policy leadership over certain functions, um, like education, health, um, but some areas such as criminal justice, crime is, is not devolved, um, for instance, in Wales. So it's very uneven. Um, but the recentralisation of UK governance post-Brexit is one of the areas which brings to the fore the relationships between um, national level legislators at Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland level and the UK Parliament and that brings us into the debates about which legislature is sovereign how do they share sovereignty and it's the sharing of powers 
that has led me into thinking about questions about how legislators work together. How do they exchange knowledge, expertise, whether it's over the COVID pandemic, whether it's over kind of societal challenges, but there's questions about how they how they link together and what are the mechanics of making that happen as well. So one of the most important and interesting aspects of your book is your inclusion of expert uh, interviews. So you were able to speak to different people at different levels in government coming at it from different angles. So I was wondering what you could tell us about what these interviews re- revealed to you and what they say about the bigger picture of interparliamentary relations. One of the the things that emerged quite soon after kind of speaking you know, to key politicians and officials is the gap in knowledge and expertise on interparliamentary relations in the devolved UK. Now, from the kind of interviews, if you're looking for kind of a headline kind of interpretation of the findings, I would say it comes down to political culture. So you can set up the mechanics almost of whether it's a committee, basically try to set up the links between the legislators. But if you do not share some common tenets of political culture, you're coming at it from different angle, different perspective, whether you want to be, for instance, a member of the European Union, um, whether you want to be a member of UN Convention of Human Rights, or all of that chimes into debates about the political culture. And until that has been tackled in each of the legislators um, to think about the cross-working, um, then there will be kind of, not resistance, but it won't be on the political agenda. They, they won't kind of be motivated to think, well, what do we do next to help the workings across the UK between legislators to do with shared powers, to do with the interdependency of each of the national territories in the UK. And the expert kind of stakeholder interviews explored the ways in which, I mean, it's called the kind of scale of acceptability. And by that, I really mean the political culture. So you have to to want to kind of um, go into negotiations, go into discussions about the practicalities and the transparency of working together as legislators. One of the other interesting areas was that of knowledge exchange, as I've mentioned earlier on, because during the the Brexit process, um, which would have been the 2017 to kind of 19 um, UK Parliament, got two chambers, um, got the House of Commons, we've got the House of Wards, which is an elected chamber, but the House of Wards set up an informal Brexit working group, which included um, the component parts of the UK. Now, the key thing about that was it was informal. There was kind of communiques, statements after the meetings, but it was informal working groups. And that, that's a different kind of nature, thinking about, yeah, it's not a federal system and still it kind of would dependent on getting the political will of each of the chambers of the legislators in the UK to contribute and to take part in ongoing discussions. 
And the the interviews also kind of found that there was more reluctance from some of the, the House of Commons um, officials and politicians to engage in intraparliamentary working with the Scottish Parliament, the, the Welsh Assembly, now Welsh Parliament, and Northern Ireland Assembly was suspended during this period. So there was also a period of, if you want, how does Northern Ireland input into this democratic process when the Assembly is suspended? Um, and it's basically the officials that are overseeing um, a lot with also the Northern Ireland Secretary of State in London. You talked about political culture um, within within this, this system. I'm also wondering about regional and national culture. You talked about the asymmetrical relationship. Um, and then I'm also just wondering about just the historical asymmetrical relationship between these different nations and how that plays into these relationships with the UK parliamentary system and within the interparliamentary systems? Yeah, I can think of one kind of really good illustration of showing that the the different histories, the different trajectories of the nature of the relationships within the UK, between each of the component parts, whether it's Northern Ireland, whether it's Scotland, Wales, England, and the UK parliament, you're kind of thinking about the legal systems. And that obviously affects legislation directly. So there's three separate legal systems in the UK. There's the English and Welsh legal system. There's the Scottish legal system. And then there's Northern Ireland as well. So you have to kind of weave your way through the the legalities of introducing legislation in a different legal context. And... You can see that basically the the history of, for instance, Wales um, and relationship with England um, is a different type of constitutional union. It goes way before you know, the, the joining of Scotland in 1707 in England, or in fact, uh, Northern Ireland with the 1920 Government of Ireland Act. Um, so the criminal justice system is intertwined with the English system uh, for that reason in Wales. Whereas Scotland, it's very different. Yeah, it's a, a distinct uh, legal system or a distinct criminal justice system. And that presents interesting kind of challenges for trying to think about decentralisation and public policy at a time when you're arguing, well, has Brexit raised questions about decentralisation of powers reaching lanes in the UK? And that's the kind of debate that's being fed into also the historical narrative of where we are just now. You're seeing it with, with each kind of, yeah. We've got a UK general election as well this year. Um, and that'll be played out differently in different territories of the UK. And they'll tie into different arguments about the relationships with the UK um, Parliament and the different electoral systems as well ties into that. So it's not just the legal system, it's different um, across the UK. We've got different forms of electoral systems for the Scottish Parliament elections, uses proportional representation, additional member system, as does the Welsh Assembly. Okay, um, Northern Ireland uses the Deloitte system, another PR, proportional representation. The UK general elections 
uses first past the post. Okay? So it's not a proportionate electoral system. So you've got, you don't have one discrete form of electoral competition because of that, because you've got different electoral systems and it all becomes much more complicated trying to work through where's your regional identity, where's your national identity, where's your state identity, what should be the UK identity, um, and what's driving the voting patterns. And you're seeing that played out in a different party system um, across the UK. Well, I'm wondering what this means to average citizens. So a Welsh person or, you know, a Scottish person, are they able to fully grasp this system? I mean, it seems very complicated and the, the way the voting works. Um, I'm wondering if, if any of your research or any of your work can point to, to how they feel about these things. Yeah, I mean, that's that's almost the, the next kind of stage of the research because this is very much, you know, what the politicians, what the kind of officials are saying about it. Um, but when you come to think about, well, where's... It's issues about public trust, almost, um, for political institutions. And we do have some evidence here from various academic surveys. So if you were to ask the electorate... Um, for instance, um, in Scotland, um, during a kind of survey, it was a Scottish Social Attitude Survey, and they asked, which institute, political institutions do you trust in terms of you know, a hierarchy almost? And the Scottish Parliament tended to be the one where they put, that's top, we trust that more so than the UK government, UK Parliament. So that's that's also in the mix. But again, there's very different kind of, trajectories within Wales, Northern Ireland and Scotland. So you can't, the problem is how do you compare um, when you're thinking about, trying to think about what are the public attitudes towards devolution? And there's interesting research in Wales, for instance, saying, well, yeah, in the first 20 years of devolution, yeah, do the kind of population actually fall through the complexity <laughs> right, of who's responsible for, for what? And we've also not mentioned no local government on top of that as well. So local government, again, has a different form of electoral systems to add to the mix. So it's it's not a neat and tidy, um, almost kind of federal setup. It's it's very kind of um, atypical in many respects because the nature of the, the union of the UK each nation joined at a different time and for different reasons and in different terms within the, each union for Northern Ireland, for Wales and Scotland as well. Um, so that's that adds to the complexity of understanding the constitutional levers almost um, and how you can understand the functionality of what are the functions of the legislators, what are they doing? Um, does the population, do the public trust? Do they think it's transparent? Um, and transparency of the relationship is, is one that's going to be key in the future, I think. Um, there's more and more calls for relationships between um, governments internationally and inter-UK to be much more transparent. So that would enhance accountability alongside that as well. Well, I wanted to ask you about the role of political parties. I know that there's... They're, they're unique and different to each region. So I'm wondering if there are some bigger takeaways we can take away from looking at the bigger picture of, of tendencies 
or their relationship with um, the parliamentary system. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is the, what you're kind of thinking about. It's a territorial representation of the political parties. And again, you have a kind of the history coming in to try and explain the different nature of party competition at UK level and party competition at regional and national level, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. And each has their own kind of legacy issues to be dealing with constitutionally, politically. But at UK level, the statewide parties, the Conservative Party, the Labour Party, Liberal Democrats, the Green Party as well, all to varying degrees have a degree of decentralisation to allow them to have a UK kind of manifesto and then to adapt it to each of the regions and the nations. Now, there's kind of debates about, yeah, to what extent are they actually kind of autonomous and making no decisions for, for Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland. And there's also um, the extent to which national identity, um, rather than class, rather than age, gender, is one of the main factors in explaining why you vote the way you do. Um, and in particular, the relationship between devolution campaign to support it in the late 1990s was really to argue that there was a distinctive agenda, particularly in Scotland at this stage, that did not support the Conservative government, the, the Thatcher government. And that led into an argument that we needed, um, in Scotland it was said, a separate political institution that would be conservative with a small C to protect the civil society in Scotland, the political institutions, and that led into that debate. Okay, So it was almost as if we wanted to retain elements of distinctiveness and it was argument, well, we need decentralisation to do that. And there was a similar argument for Wales, um, Northern Ireland, obviously, the, the debate was different. It was to do with the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. So, again, that kind of flavoured the nature of devolution there. And there's a different kind of um, dimension to the National Assembly and how the parties work together, the dehoindant voting system um, as well. So it's, it is, yeah, the, the informal relationships between each of the component parts of the UK is really what has been developing over the, the first 20 years of devolution. But Brexit was a kind of shock to the system, if you want. Yeah, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about Brexit, if you could say something more about that, because it is really a shock to the system. Um, so I'm wondering how these these individual parliamentary systems function in the bigger picture of the EU and on the world stage. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, one of the kind of clear things was that the 1998 legislation um, for devolution uh, for Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland um, assumed UK continued membership of the EU. That meant that a lot of the decentralised powers to each of the national areas and regions were in fact um, under the kind of remit of the European Union, whether it's got to do with elements of social policy, the economy, it had to do with the European directives. And subsidiarity, which is part of the workings of the EU, 
that the, the lowest level of government should actually deal with the implementation and administration of EU regulations meant that the, the Scottish devolved parliament and the devolved Welsh Assembly and for Northern Ireland as well actually had direct um, soft networks, if you like, because they had the levers of control. What Brexit did was, if you like, um, it removed those um, because if you remove membership of the EU and you say that we're not going to align to any of the EU directives, um, then we need to ask the question, well, what's going to hold the UK together? Because under the 1998 legislation for devolution, membership of the EU held the component parts of the UK together because it allowed flexibility, subsidiarity in that way. But that changed um, as we worked through the, the implications of the UK referendum on EU membership in 2016 because Northern Ireland, Scotland, both of these areas voted to retain membership of the EU and Wales and England did not. Um, now, situations changed um, a lot since 2016, but it gives you a flavour of kind of um, the arguments that do the, the different nations need a special um, arrangements post-EU membership. And Northern Ireland obviously has that because of the Good Friday Agreement, because of the different nature of constitutional power there and relationships with the UK government. It's what was complex before has become <laughs> even more, um, it's kind of moved up a level almost. Yeah, well, I see how, you know, that these tensions arise. And I'm wondering about actual dysfunction in the government. If if there comes a point where there's just a crunch where things are not working. Um, I'm thinking here particularly of the 2015 law known as EVIL, the English Votes for English Laws. Was there, if you could say something a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. Here the political culture comes in to beginning to kind of use it as an illustration of, I suppose, a different tenor of the debates across the political parties and between the devolved administrations and the UK government. So in 2014, there was a referendum in Scotland, a referendum on whether Scotland should remain in the UK or should leave the UK. And the the vote in 2014 resulted in a um, decision, well, we're retaining membership of, with the UK. Um, and the day after the, the referendum, um, which was in September 2014, um, David Cameron, the UK Prime Minister, gave a speech um, outside Downing Street where he argued that after the, the vote yesterday, that the debate on devolution and the need for further decentralisation had moved more so to the English context. And that raised questions. He said, well, England does not have a devolved legislature for the whole of England. So the laws and the scrutiny of legal kind of drivers goes through the Westminster Parliament. Whereas the Scotland, the Welsh, Northern Ireland MPs can input into 
English laws, but the English MPs, can they input into you know, the Scottish devolved laws, the Welsh devolved laws, Northern Ireland? So English votes for English laws was seen to be a response, a political response to we need to address some of the issues about governments in England by David Cameron, the UK Prime Minister at that stage. Now, what they ended up with was a highly complex um, forms of statutes, procedures to try and work through what evil actually meant um, in the workings of the UK Parliament. And there was a role for the, the Speaker of the Commons to decide whether a law applied only to England didn't kind of extend notice Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. And in that case, they would kind of ensure that the Scottish MPs, Welsh MPs, Northern Ireland MPs would not be able to kind of vote on that. But it became highly complex because of what we're saying earlier on about the interdependency of devolved powers, what were retained or reserved powers at UK level. Um, the spillover between the two is happens more often than not. There's something, um, very few issues are discreetly just relate to one territory, whether it's whatever one in the UK. Um, and that kind of meant to, basically, evil has been, it's been dropped. It exists no more. And because of the workability of it, it just, it wasn't working out um, on the procedures of the parliament. So I view your book as sort of a foundational text into interparliamentary studies. You give a, a really great overview. You go into expert interviews to paint a picture of the current state and then also the historical context of it. Um, but I'm wondering if going forward, what sort of gaps you see in um, in the study of interparliamentary relations and where you see future research going? Yeah. I think that what you're going to find is that because we're approaching a UK general election, um, there had been some debates about whether we'd see further reform to the House of Wards, and the House of Wards might be reformed to take on board more the kind of mechanics of devolution. So it'd be a, it could be a kind of second chamber uh, to do scrutiny of laws but it would have more voices from the component parts of the UK, whereas, obviously, there's a debate about the membership of the House of Wards um, unelected. Now, whether or not that will happen in the future, um, with the assuming, um, as the opinion polls say, it's unlikely we're going to see a Conservative uh, Party being re-elected, um, but you never know, but assuming it's not, then you would assume that there will be a kind of some sort of debate about can interparliamentary relations be incorporated into wider constitutional reform agendas to do with the House of Lords, to do with, I suppose, the mechanics of also the political cultures of each of the nations. Um, and also what we should have kind of mentioned, yeah, in Scotland we've got, you know, the SNP, the Scottish National Party, which is pro-independence. Um, at the moment, Un uneasy about talking about interparliamentary relations when it's still within the UK, and um, that's where the political culture comes in. So, whether it's on the political agenda high up, um, post the UK general election, we can see, but we'll see, I suppose, flashpoints constitutionally 
and I think it will increase. We're seeing that some of it already has happened to do with the UN Convention of Human Rights, um, to do with other areas of kind of civil service involvement and policies for independence for nations and regions within the UK. Can they use these resources legitimately to basically question um, the continuance of the UK? Um, that's not going to go away. So whether there's political will to address it, we'll wait and see after the general election. But I think it will be more kind of galvanised to do with kind of other reforms to do with the workings of the UK Parliament and quitting the House of Orbs. Now, from, from your perspective, from your own work, where do you see your research going? Um, I think work on the kind of the political culture of the legislators. Um, and I think that ties into issues of trust, legitimacy and accountability. And what I would like is kind of developing comparative work because what we don't have is a neat and tidy kind of comparison for the UK, as we said, because it's so atypical. Um, but when we begin to think about relations between legislators, then we can think of other forums um, in European, also um, with other kind of nations um, within federal systems as well, thinking about how does the practicalities go? And then we can actually feed into debates about how devolution um, might develop within reforming UK governance. Is it still going to re-centralise? Is it going to seek to devolve more powers? And that's going to be one of the important areas that's going to be very current um, towards the end of this year, the start of next year, when we come out of the UK general election, because then we're in the run not to devolved elections in 2026 in Scotland and Wales, um, thinking about, yeah, how are we going to tackle uh, reform to the devolved legislators? Um, So that's another area where you might see more of a kind of political will um, to consider how to improve the relationships, particularly for UK level, the Labour Party is trying to steer through this debate. Um, as well. So, yeah, it's very current. Um, I think you might see continual flashpoints in the Constitution before you see any substantial reorganisation to any of the political institutions in the UK. Um, But I think that's... um, We should wait and see how many more referendums we have at UK level and also within the devolved nations as well. Um, Yeah, we've also got um, the potential for referendums in Northern Ireland and Ireland to do with reunification um, of Ireland, which could feed into the debates in Scotland and Wales about changing relationships between the UK government as well. So, yeah, yeah, it's not neat and tidy. <laughs> no, I was thinking just how complex all of this is. It's really a lot to to wrap your mind around. But I would say, yeah, a lot of it has to do with the tone of the political debate. And the other interesting thing is that because there's no separation of powers, um, what role does the judiciary, the courts have when you've got unwritten statutes um, about how different parts of the UK can kind of and work together? Um, and that comes to the 
appoint your what does parliamentary sovereignty mean um and how do people view it um ties into trust as well um and political leadership Thank you for listening to today's episode. For more information about my guest, Margaret Arnott, and a link to her book, Interparliamentary Relations and the Future of Devolution in the UK, 1998-2018, please visit our website. I'd like to thank my guest and the studio, This is Distorted, for the help with today's episode.